Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Access to open space near interconnection is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. If you are faced with the choice of being told no by a town with open substation capacity and adopting a more sustainable approach with agrivoltaics, I wonder which one your investors really want you to do. You should ask them. Agrivoltaics or solar PV paired with livestock or crops make for rich marketing materials. Good luck finding a developer brochure free of grazing sheep. But the project segment is far more than a kitschy niche. While the concept is well understood in Europe, the U.S. is still finding its way with agrivoltaics. Early iterations lacked scalability due to added costs and irrational system requirements established by policymakers. I'm John Ingle, Content Director for Renewable Energy World. And this week on Factor This, I'm joined by Lucy Bullock-Seeger, who wants you to forget everything you think you know about agrivoltaics. As the Vice President of Strategy for Boston-based developer Lightstar Renewables, Bullock-Seeger is on a mission to prove that agrivoltaics is ready for prime time with a new approach. In addition to establishing a cost-neutral agrivoltaics development process, Lightstar has experienced improved community relations, expedited permits, and a mitigant to the interconnection nightmare. Bullock Seeger breaks down the rosy future for agrivoltaics without the thorns. That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Lucy Bullock Seeger, thanks for joining the Factor This podcast. Great to see you. Good to see you too, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And I've been looking forward to having this conversation about, you know, dual use and agrivoltaics for a long time, but had struggled to find a way to approach the topic. And so when you and I met and got a chance to chat back and forth, I really liked your perspective here and think you can add to it beyond just we want sheep in the in the in the fields and we want pollinator habitats. I think there's more nuance to the topic than we often give it credit for. So Really excited to dive into all of that. But before we get too much further, how about you outline a little bit of your background and how you got to the position you're at now with uh, Lightstar? Yeah, so I come from a research background. So that's kind of why I latch on to agrivoltaics research and really kind of scaling it and convincing convincing the industry that it's a good idea. And so I did environmental health and that's how I dove into uh, understanding that fossil fuels disproportionately impact uh, poorer folks and people of color. And so then I was sick of research because it took forever to be published. <laughs> and so I decided to jump ship and go whole hog into clean energy. And so that's how I came into um, solar and have been there for about um, seven or eight years and uh, found myself at Lightstar. And they brought me on to kind of pivot the entire sustainable siting um, strategy there and dive into agrivoltaics because we've been seeing, um, and I think everybody in the industry can note that siting is getting few and far between, especially if you can find interconnection. So uh, towns are being more restrictive, towns are more concerned. Um, They have dueling uh, priorities, such as preserving farmland and also 
going clean and and providing benefits to their uh, community and residents. So agrivoltaics just kept coming and coming up. And the more we talked about it, the easier it became to convince people. And uh, folks are really starting to to heat up the conversation about it. So that's how I got here. Yeah. And it's not just like a niche uh, segment of solar anymore. It is becoming more and more ingrained in that overall conversation about project development, to your point, in that you see it in examples as, you know, community solar programs in various states are going from pilot to permanent. You're seeing these requirements around dual use and uh, deeper conversations and understanding around land use and where we want these projects to be cited, not just, uh, you know, Greenfield and and out in the middle of nowhere anymore. We we need to get a little more creative about how these projects um, come online. So, can you do some level setting for us when we talk about agrivoltaics and dual use? What are we meaning by that? And uh, maybe even outline a little bit of the evolution of where this started and uh, where we find ourselves today. Yeah, I know so, that's a that's a big question, and we'll, we'll get to say, ver- get to various aspects of that over the next hour. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not a PhD level yet, but there are people out there that are. Um, but typically in the United States, it did it started um, in the policy realm in Massachusetts, and uh, we started to talk about dual use there. And so, but shortly after that, we found that dual use is is kind of a misnomer because dual use could be landfills and solar. It could be pollinators and solar. It could be carbon sequestration and solar, you know, so, but the agrivoltaics is really the terminology that the industry should be using when we're talking about solar plus farming. And so, and then within that, there's, you know, other segments that, you know, you have your grazing, you have your cattle grazing, your sheep grazing, um, you have your crop market crops, commodity crops, all of that. So that's kind of all under the umbrella of agrivoltaics. So, Agriculture and voltaics, <laughs> photovoltaics smashed together um, in to make that horrendous word. But we're working with it because that's what's been around for the longest. Um, but yeah, there's the the big difference between the dual use um, and agrivoltaics is there needs to be integrated active farming in and around the arrays, um, and we're seeing a lot more of that and a lot more people demanding it. You know, the policy conversation has started. Um, to come to us every single week. There's a new market, there's a new stakeholder, uh, there's a new landowner, a new farmer coming to us and asking for it to be um, an option for them and asking us to provide more information. So yeah, there's, does that answer your question about (laughs) why agrivoltaics? (laughs) Yeah. And so what did that early, early stage version of agrivoltaics and dual use in Massachusetts look like? What, what are we talking about time frame and what were maybe some of those early learnings of how we were going to do this because it was so nascent at the time? Yeah. So about 2017, uh, Massachusetts started to talk about its next iteration of, of solar. And so that was to be the SMART program, the Solar Massachusetts Renewable Target Program. And they had come out with some alternative siting preferences, and they had had two previous community solar and generally solar um, programs, ESRIC 1 and 2. And so that was really kind of a free-for-all for greenfield and open space development. And But I do want to plug that in ESRIC 2, um, you saw the largest amount of landfills plus solar, um, and Massachusetts is number one in that in the country. So 
they really wanted to explore how, you know, other countries have been integrating land use um, for, with solar and agriculture. And so we had read a previous company that I had worked at. We worked to um, put together some guardrails for what that might look like. And unfortunately, uh, it's a really administratively burdensome program. And I have really high hopes that the latest administration is going to come through and, and kind of streamline that process because that's really the only way that you can get full solar adoption in Massachusetts and meet our goals if we have really good um, agrivoltaics projects. Because right now there's a really great incentive, but um, the sheeting rules have not come up the curve um, and met the research that has come out in the last couple of years. So we're still working with rules that essentially haven't been updated for the last, you know, five or six years. So there's really an opportunity for Massachusetts to kind of snatch back the crown of, of agrivoltaics leader because New Jersey is right on its heels and they are really, they're going to be implementing their dual use, although it should be called agrivoltaics. We now know, um, <laughs> program in the summer. And so this summer, so we're really excited about that and hope, hope to have a, a program opened by the end of the year because it is a pretty rich adder in Massachusetts and that's nice. And, but it comes with increased requirements. Um, and we're, we at Lightstar, I am personally obsessed with <laughs> scaling agrivoltaics. And if we were to go with Mass the Massachusetts model and the design requirements that they demand, um, Nobody is going to adopt agrivoltaics. You can see that hmm. in Massachusetts. You know, they have about um, 70 to 80 megawatts in the pipeline there, and uh, only a handful of them have actually been implemented because of the administrative administrative burden. Um, lots of people are interested in doing agrivoltaic solar in Massachusetts, uh, but there's not been a lot of adoption because of that. It's lots of uncertainty, and, and developers don't like that. So, but it's possible to have a clear set of guidelines and rules that you have to meet and reporting requirements that are not overly burdensome, but, you know, command uh, high quality and a uh, high bar for entry. So it doesn't have to be very difficult. Europe's been doing it for 15 years, um, and mm -hmm. I'm really hopeful that uh, the United States markets are going to come up the curve on that because we're not going to be able to expand this without being at cost um, and scale. So what is most burdensome then? Is it how the systems have to be designed under the, the policy framework? Is it just getting approval? Like where, where is the choke point there? Yeah, the choke point is in the approval process. And so there's, uh, there's not been a too much leadership commitment to building out that process. And so there's a, a lot most of the time what we hear is that folks are really afraid to approve projects and that they're actually not going to be able to grow anything underneath it. But we know <laughs> that from science and research and other countries that have been doing this, and also the Jack Solar Garden in Longmont, Colorado has been doing this for three seasons now. And they have, they have over 20 varieties of plants and vegetables and it's thriving and they even are opening their community supported agriculture program this year. So, and selling shares to actual customers. So this is, if they believe that, that that's what they can grow and they're putting their business model behind it, then, you know, we should be following suit in other markets um, and, you know, really level setting about what's possible to grow underneath these arrays. So I think Massachusetts has just been a little bit 
out in front of their skis um, with this. But I think that with some good, strong leadership at the top with the new administration, we can really streamline this and get it done and, and provide really high quality agricultural production underneath these arrays. Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Engel. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. And the reason we're talking so much about Massachusetts right now is because in this industry, those first mover markets are really important Mm -hmm. because it it kind of becomes templatized around the rest of the country as we look for, okay, California did net metering this way. And then we see these iterations of NEM 1.0, 2.0, whatever, playing out in other states. And then the same scenario for agrivoltaics. Um, So how do these how do these systems look when when Massachusetts basically said this is what agrivoltaics is, and this is how you have to build them, how do they differ in makeup, say, to a a greenfield project? So in Massachusetts, the requirement is in order to get the six cent adder, you have to be at least eight feet in the air, eight to 10 feet in the air, depending on what your agricultural operation is. And so they also require you to meet a 50% shading rule that no square foot within the array can exceed more than 50% shade at any given time. And so that leads to these really ugly, overbuilt, highly customized uh, boutique projects um, that increase costs, doesn't necessarily increase, agricult- increase agricultural yield. Um, and, you know, it impacts the ratepayer that way. So, and it also deters people from wanting to deploy solar that way. So, which I argue that that's not what we want to do because we're currently in a farmland crisis and that's either going to be paved over for parking lots and, you know, developments, which is what's happening in my town, Norfolk, Massachusetts. We have, we're in the top town, top 10 counties for farmland loss, according to the American Farmland Mm -hmm. Trust 2040 um, projections. And so I sit here and I look at all of these developments and I think, did we want them to be in agricultural production or did we want them to be these big houses? And I am not anti-housing. I also think that we need more housing, but there's a way to do it and balancing those priorities. So uh, just like we're balancing the clean energy and agricultural priorities, we can do the same with housing. So um, Massachusetts being the template, I would steer away from it, but I think it was a good exercise in figuring out what works, what doesn't, what are the resources that are needed for the state, for developers, for the farmland community, um, for the agricultural community? And, you know, we're moving forward. And at Lightstar, we're doing this without an incentive now in other states because we know this is the right thing to do. We know this is the future. We want to demonstrate to the industry that this is the way to do it. Um, you mentioned what do these look like? Guess what? They look very similar to a lot of the arrays that you can see out there. And it is off the shelf racking. It's either one in portrait or two in portrait. And the racket from the ground to to, torque tube is about seven and a half, um, six to seven and a half feet, depending on the design of it. And then the spacing is about 28 to 32 feet between posts. So If you go out to a utility scale, I see this all the time down the street from me, (laughs) there is a small single axis tracking array and it is tall enough for a tractor to get underneath 
and I see the mower that is actually a tractor working it like every so often in the summer. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, couldn't that just be crops? So, you know, there's, and then retrofitting those kinds of arrays is another conversation, but we know that it works because of Jack SolarGuard in the U.S. The Europe has doing, been doing this for a while. They're now moving towards scale with the single axis tracking arrays that are slightly uh, farther apart in rows. Um, but it really is not that difficult. And that's the big secret <laughs> is you just have to have the resources and the will to figure it out. When I've seen some of those early agrivoltaics projects, photo project photos in Massachusetts from um, Blue Wave and others where where you were at previously that do look it is kind of it is pretty, you know, they're these kind of single modules is on it? stilts and and some. some <laughs> well, I, I think it's like it's different. It makes a nice like, go there, article go th- photo. <laughs> yeah. If you go there and you look at them, they are just overbuilt. And if you look at compared to the pictures of Jack's in Colorado, Jack's is so beautiful. It literally looks like agriculture in concert with solar. And it just doesn't have to be, you know, 33, 40% added cost. At Jack's, it was 5%. And they built that about four years ago. And now we're at a even better place because that single axis tracking is the industry standard. And it is the guidelines for agrivoltaics these days to have single axis tracking arrays. So like, I I would really argue that there's really no excuse for anybody's development and engineering team to not consider at least a couple agrivoltaic arrays in their portfolios. They probably already have some. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what's the separation then from the policymakers and what's, what's happening in the field and in the, in the research community? Cause I know NREL is doing a a lot of research Mm -hmm. around crop yields and the best, crops to use in, in various locations and climates. And, and that's right. a whole different conversation. So I don't think we need to get into like all the biodynamics of agriculture. Um, <laughs> we can, you, you might be able to, I won't be able to, I just see blueberry versus strawberry and that's what I yeah. report on. But um, so then c- compare that early ugly project like you're talking about to Jack's and, and describe Jack's a little bit in Colorado for those that aren't aware of that project and why you cite that project so often in opportunities like this and all the panels and conferences you go to. Um, why why yeah. does that one stick out so much? Because it this is that is going to be the scale. You know, there's there's a hump for adoption. Right. And so you need to get over that little molehill because we need to demonstrate it. And it really is astounding to me that people still don't know about Jack's and shout out to Jack Solar Garden and owner operator Byron Kamenik um, and the Colorado Agrivoltaic Learning Center out there, which is their nonprofit that teaches people all about agrivoltaics. You can take your team out there, take a tour. It It is literally a Kool-Aid drinking experience because I'll tell this little story about how we actually kind of pivoted LightStar and everybody became true, true believers because I had been sending around research. I had American Farmland Trust come in and chat with our team about the benefits of it and what it might look like and how it might work. And, you know, people were going along with it. And then I got our vice president of engineering to come with me. Actually, it was his idea to go out to Jack's and take a tour. And it was even it was in the fall. And so the harvest season had really passed for most farms. Um, but Jax was still harvesting because there was this microclimate within the array. 
and they were leveraging that to their benefit. And so that was the first aha moment for me because I was like, it works and works really well. And there are added benefits and it's so great. And then for our VP of engineering, he walked on site and immediately said, oh yeah, we can do this. If this is what this is like, we can do this. It's a single axis tracking array. There's the majority of the the crop planting is done um, on a one in portrait, six feet from ground to tor- torque tube. I believe it's 16 feet between um, posts and 11 feet between panel edges, which if you remember what I just recalled from the, what we're using is that's almost double <laughs> the amount of in, spacing. In that, that, yeah. No, no, no. That we're using oh, that, that Lightstar is using for our standard agrivoltaic design, which is the same, almost the same as our standard community solar array design um, with the exception of fences are set back a little bit further so we can get the tractors and implements to turn mm-hmm. around properly between rows. So our VP of engineering, uh, he said, this is great. We can do this. This racking already exists now that we were already looking at this exact racking for our standard projects and we can do this wire management better. And that's all he said. And then he was done. He was like, okay, let's do this. Let's get the agreements. Let's get the planning started. Um, and my job was done. I thought it was going to be way harder, <laughs> but, um, you know, that it, seeing is believing and back to your original question is how do we get people to really do this? And NREL is doing a lot of research and folks use research as, um, kind of this stumbling block to adoption, but really we have a body of research that's been, existed in the United States for 10 years even more in Japan and Europe. And, you know, what we really need is adoption. And the be- the best way to do that is to show people that we can do it at cost, we can do it at scale, and it's competitive with standard arrays. And literally the only added cost that Lightstar sees um, is planning. It just takes a little more time to get the integration of the ag- agricultural operation right. And we're finding that, with subsequent projects, our first batch, like kind of, we wanted to make sure we did it right, but our subsequent projects are going quicker because we know what we're doing. We have the people in the right positions telling us what we need to do. We have our, our consultants and we've got our farmers engaged. So really is not that difficult and seeing is believing. And that's why we're really charging forward with a bunch of our, uh, our first portfolio of projects to show folks. Well, and that's a, a big reason why solar has scaled as well as it has is that a lot of these projects don't have much variability in what they look like and how they operate. And so you can, to a, to a degree, um, expect similar results in, in the planning process and all these things. So is that what you guys are seeing and now putting this into, I'm assuming, all of your projects, uh, projects that you're working on? Is that correct? We're, so we have 238 megawatts of agrivoltaic projects across seven wow states. And we foresee having agrivoltaic projects in all of our markets, and we're currently in 12. And so we think that this is, once we have this down pat, and we've really put something into the ground and get the operational next spring, um, it's, there's no stopping us. <laughs> you know, we're, we have about 800 megawatts in our development pipeline in general. And so it's a, it's a pretty good size of our okay. portfolio. Um, and it'll only start only keep growing. 
but they are more customized than just a normal greenfield project development. So, and that would. The only thing that's customized is the operations and maintenance plan. Okay. Interesting. The design is really no different with the exception of making sure there's more feet, more space between the panel, the end of the row of panels and the fence. And are you working with primarily existing agriculture sites, not bringing the agriculture to a greenfield solar development? Okay, it is. So it's an interesting conversation to have with local folks and um, the permitting authorities, because we could reactivate, you know, fallow farmland, but folks need to see that it's working and that they can trust it and that we can move forward with it before we really do anything else. So for example, one of our projects in New York is going to be a hayfield. And so we really would like to see our vision, long-term vision for that parcel is, is going to be um, vegetable production. But for now, the town is most comfortable with us uh, continuing with the haying operation and seeing is believing, like I said. So the first, first year will probably be, um, they'll do three cuts of hay and then we'll start to talk. Uh, we have we're in conversations with other farmers in the area that are interested in in leasing and um, expanding their vegetable production. So I really like too that you have this background on the community engagement side too, and so you might have some insight to share on how those converse, conversations are different with landowners, farm owners around. We know this works. Look at Jack's here. Are the pictures. It's beautiful. But you're still dealing with, you know, people's livelihoods and and something that they, uh, you know, is more predictable because they're not dealing with with solar. So does it change the calculus a bit on how you're connecting with landowners and sharing this message of um, a bit of a bit of trust us, you know? Yeah. So what's I'll throw this out there. It's really interesting because in our mailers for our origination team, we we give the choice. We say. You can either do a standard array and we'll take it out of production um, or you can keep farming and we'll do an agrivoltaics array with you. And it's about 50-50. And hmm. we, I was pretty shocked about that when it first came back and when we decided to just give people a choice. And so farmers are really interested. They don't want to see their land go out of production. There are some who are ready and you know this is the best fit for them, but... The majority of our agrivoltaics farmers, um, they're ready to pivot. They're ready for their family to pivot. A lot of the times um, they have, their enterprise is not as robust as and viable as they really want it to be. And this is a one way that they can shore up viability without losing their farmland and so that they can then pass it on to the next generation. As soon as we start talking to the next generation about what the plan is for farming, eyes light up. They're so ready. They feel like the risk is mitigated. Um, Is it a different way of farming? Yeah. Are they going to have to learn something new? Yeah. But farmers have done that for thousands of years and they're incredible innovators. They have great vision about how this can happen. They're incredible partners this way because they are confident that they can do this. (laughs) So uh, we're just kind of providing them with a new way of doing it. And, um, also some stability for the future. Maybe a, a stupid question here, but does, so if the, the farm owner elects to continue farming and lets you build 
uh, a solar project on their land, you, you lease that land and the right to develop it. Does it change at all the economics around what you're paying for that lease if they are able to continue farming versus taking the parcel out of production? So it doesn't. And but okay. where where things are different is that sometimes there's a landowner that isn't the farmer. And so they lease it out to a tenant farmer. And so we work with the tenant farmer, but we want the tenant farmer to be engaged. And we also want to have kind of a contract for compliance, right? Because that's the number one criticism we get when we go to municipalities. And I definitely warn my dearest industry colleagues to not just go to municipalities and say, we're going to farm it. Like you got to think about this and help them understand and get over the trust issue uh, because it really is the municipalities that have the trust issues and they don't want us to just put steel in the ground and then, you know, run. So this, we have a farmer stipend and it comes from the long-term operation and maintenance budget. So it really doesn't, it's just a cost shift. And so we have a, a stipend that we pay to the farmers on a quarterly basis based on um, acreage. And so that gives them, the farmer, the tenant farmer, income stability. It gives us compliance uh, mechanism. So like you need to keep this in, in production. And then therefore we give go to the town and say like, we're on the hook to keep this farmer um, engaged. And so, hmm. you know, obviously there's uh, allowances for crop failure, extreme weather, you know, uh, anything like that typically that comes with farming that has nothing to do with the solar array. <laughs> um, but those are, those are how we build trusts is, is making sure that we have an engaged farmer long-term. Um, and if that farmer decides it's not for them, then we have, we working with American farmland trust and other partners. There are literally lists of people in every single county in this country that are looking for farmland. So this is an opportunity for new entry farmers, for first, um, new entry means people who are refugees and migrants that have come here and fled their countries for one reason or the other, maybe climate change, drought, all that. They were farmers. They need land. It's expensive to access land. So these this business model and this land is actually really ripe for folks like that. And then um, first generation farmers always looking for new land and opportunities to expand their operations. So this is a great way to to put that on the market and, and make it available to folks like that. And so many environmental justice touch points, too, which is probably a whole other conversation. But what is the story that you're then telling to municipalities, which you said is the, the toughest piece of the puzzle at times and convincing them that this is the right thing for their community. How do you um, kind of set up that communication strategy and, and orchestration, uh, again, leaning on that, that civic engagement uh, background that you had previously? Yeah, I literally just go in and ask the question. <laughs> and it's amazing how responsive people are when you come and you know what you're talking about. You've prepared, you've done the research, um, you've really dug in on it. And they can tell, right? This is... This is Development 101. Municipalities, they've got a good nose <laughs> for something that doesn't smell right. So be prepared and engage uh, consultants. There are agrivoltaic consultants all over this country now, and there's and it's a whole industry that's popping up to meet the needs of utility scale developers and now DG developers. So, you know, the narrative is ask the questions, be an engaged partner. Um, a lot of the times you raise the question and they invite you in and they say, this is great. 
tell me what you think and, you know, help us decipher what we need to do in order to help this project go through or what kind of variances do you have? And, you know, some people will look at this because the industry is very used to quick permitting processes. You know, it's, they're just one, like very myopic, one track mind. I got to get this in the ground. Got to get it permitted. Go, 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 go. If you just stop <laughs> because you really don't want to cause a moratorium, which is probably more time than take, than spending the time engaging on agrivoltaics, you definitely don't want to have um, an appeals process situation. You know, there's, there's ways to go about it and listening, even if it adds a couple of months to your timeline, it really is, it, it will go a long way. Uh, we've seen that success in our tact and our strategy. So we're, we, I really encourage my, my colleagues to, to think about that. And also once you get this down pat internally about like your narrative, your, uh, your facts, your vendors, your consultants, all of that, uh, permitting can go much faster than just a standard array. So, because people want it and they will choose that. So we've seen that as time, as our portfolio has matured, you know, it's getting faster and faster because we know what we're talking about. We're showing what we're talking about and these people are trusting us and we, um, you know, they want to see it happen more than just a standard array. And you touched on it a little bit, but the, you know, this, this desire to uh, deploy, deploy, deploy as fast as we can, we know that's important, but that can come off to people who aren't in our day-to-day, you know, uh, industry yeah. as, as steamrolling. You know, it can it can feel yeah. like a lot. You know, you parachute into a community origination team's gone after you, you know, you sign that yeah. lease and, and you have the land rights and get that permit. So um, it, it sounds like you're very purposeful in not letting that be the impression that is left by your entrant into a community. Is that and I'm sure yeah. that goes beyond agrivoltaics, too. Yeah, I mean, it's also agrivoltaics lends itself to long term asset owners because nobody wants to have, you know, anything switch hands, not to say it can't work, but you do need to make sure that you are communicating on the back end of that deal about what it actually means to be agrivoltaics. We just, I just spoke at, um, the solar plaza, uh, asset management, North America. And we talked about that, you know, because I was like, you guys are going to be seeing a lot of more agrivoltaics in your portfolios come across your desk. And so you need to be prepared about what that means and what that looks like and making sure that you're communicating about, you know, site access, safety, uh, supporting the farmer, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it doesn't have to be so hard. It's just a different kind of conversation. Um, but yeah. Well, and the O&M groups will also, those, those just focused on O&M, I'm sure are adapting to, you know, make this a bigger piece of their value proposition as well. Is that, is that what you're seeing? Right. So, you know, the number one question we get from people are about insurance. They're like, well, isn't this just going to increase insurance because somebody's on site all the time? Hmm. It's like, guess what? The insurers really like that because then, you know, the farmer is there tending to the crops. And the if there's a tree down, you know, hit the fence or something like that, the farmer's there. And maybe you have them on contract for, you know, maintaining the rest of the grounds. So that tree is removed by the end of the day instead of having to call and maybe like a couple days later you're finding it and it's weeks go by and maybe you have a whole portion of your array that's down because of it. So like this, they see it as more of an assurance, not a deterrent. And so one thing, another, I think I was on one of my panel uh, colleagues um, from Silicon ranch said that 
a lot of insurers are like that the farmer is there because it's a deterrent of theft. So these oh. are the things that you need to think about. And um, you know, we're, we're seeing it as a huge asset. And they the, the farmers are not only contracted for vegetation management for under the arrays, they're mowing, they're doing the tree removal if, if needed, um, snow removal, all of that, kind of the maintaining of the array. So it's all, that's the person, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? It's just a shift of, who's responsible for that scope of work. It's really interesting. And I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, so just to, to round out the point that you made on Lightstar is developing agrivoltaics projects, even in markets where there aren't adder incentives to support that. How are you getting that to pencil? And beyond it's the right thing to do, What what is the the thought behind that effort, knowing that you are adding some cost and you are bringing some other variables into the, to the equation. Um, I I'm interested to, to have, to have that conversation, especially because as more States bring on incentive programs around dual use, agrivoltaics, whatever, um, those are usually geared toward new projects. So if you've already got steel on the ground mm-hmm. and you've made this investment and in all of that, you might not even get the benefit of that adder. So what's the, what's the strategy behind just the proactive investment? Yeah. So couple things. Yes, there's a lot of feel-good stuff that's available for retrofitting, <laughs> but we can get to that. I have a vision for that too. <laughs> but um, just to address the co- the additional cost thing, agrivoltaics is cost neutral for, for LightStar. And I think that other industry players can get there too. And, you know, the only, there is no hard cost. There's no increase in height. There's no, you know, decreasing in uh, yield, that kind of thing. There's, it, it is the same design, maybe a little bit different, um, as a standard CS array. Now time is money, right? So it may take a little more time to get that conversation right. with the, the farmer, right. Or, you know, the, the town, right. But the way I see it, John, is that the real value proposition is that access to open space near interconnection is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And if you are faced with the choice of being told no by a town with open substation capacity and adopting a more sustainable approach with agrivoltaics, I wonder which one your investors really want you to do. So, and I bet you should ask them because if you don't have the substation, if you are just trying to squeeze juice out of a rock and just waiting in a queue in downstate New York somewhere or New Jersey or Illinois, you're probably going to want to find a town that you can work with to do something a little different. And that's what the future is. You know, folks, I, I said it at the top of this is that every single week we have somebody reaching out to us, somebody significant, a stakeholder, national stakeholders that are like, can we really viably ask people to do this? And the answer is yes. And people just need to put their goggles on <laughs> and really buckle down and and see that it is possible. Is it an upfront investment in terms of resources internally? Probably. Yeah. But guess what? Like if you are constantly having the same conversation with your origination team, with your dev team about interconnection, about, you know, out not being competitive with land options, like all of that kind of stuff, maybe it's something to look at differently. Hmm. And I'm, I'm hearing that from, some of the bigger utility scale players too, you know, they're, they get 
really slammed with taking up thousands of acres of farmland. And what's the other option? Not doing that project? Probably not. (laughs) I don't think they can go to their board members or their investors and say that, oopsie doopsie, we can't do this one now. So, you know, they're there a few of the the big guys are really thinking about agrivoltaics as a community engagement tool and i think that's the right way to do it that's a great way to frame it i love that you said that because it's not just about the the sheep or the berries or the flowers which, which are all great and important pollinator habitats are very Beautiful important like and delicious we, yeah yeah we support <laughs> all of that and it it, it it helps this industry also tell a good story to the public about what we're doing but your point on yeah. like this is going to help in permitting and interconnection and um, citing, I think that's those those pieces are what will appeal most to developers and asset owners. And so, when you now see what works, the the jacks and and the projects that you guys are working on versus those early uh, you know first mover projects in Massachusetts, when you compare the two, I, I heard, I, I think I saw the reason I first reached out to you is I saw a comment on LinkedIn or somewhere else about a panel that you were on where you drew on this analogy that those early stage projects were like a Ferrari and, and no, oh, yeah. yeah, I, I love the Ferrari analogy. That was actually, was it someone else? So it was, but a good, good friend of, of Lightstar, uh, Nate Latoyle, who's the managing director for farm viability at American farmland trust. And he said that at a conference, he said, Massachusetts tried to build a Ferrari, but now nobody can drive it and nobody can afford it. So that's just, yeah, yeah, or service it anywhere. So (laughs) like, but, and that's the exact analogy. And so that's exactly what Lightstar is trying to do is that everybody needs a good Chevy. Everybody needs electric, obviously electric, electric, of course, um, electric Chevy. Great. And, uh, you know, we need, we need those mid-sized models and, and this is how we're going to get to it. Now in the future, I think that we are going to see more racking companies enter the market. Obviously, IRA is a huge driver of that. Mm-hmm. And racking, we are already speaking to a European racking company that we think is going to be cost competitive in the next couple of years. So yeah, we will be able to do those super pretty, like you Google agrivoltaics in Germany and they're so beautiful. Beautiful and vines blah, blah, blah. on everything. And, and yeah, yeah the, the orchards and blah. And so yeah, we're going to get there, but it's not now. And we need to get um, these projects into the ground. And like I said, I, I do, I act in a different sense of urgency than some of the other industry players do. You know, they, they really need to get steel on the ground. I, we do too. We do too. But <laughs> we are up against a 2040 clock, right? My son is going to be 21 in 2040. And that freaks me out because it really too. is not that far. <laughs> yeah. So like <laughs> I think about that. He came home with this like Earth Day art. And, you know, I was like, I, I'm going to frame it because it's going to be a reminder that 2040 is just around the corner. And so if we're not pushing on these innovations and pushing to get things at cost and at scale yeah. without, you know, taking farmland off of the table, then, you know, we're not doing our job. And so that that's my sense of urgency to get people to to really think hard about agrivoltaics and and ha- what benefits it can be for the industry, but also just accelerating adoption because we need to capture these IRA incentives. We need to capture these new markets that are opening up. We need to capture these corporate sustainability goals. And we're get- we need to be doing it in a smart way or else we're going to get stopped. And you're such an evangelist on this topic and you can tell that you're very passionate about it and you you 
you believe in it. Um, it's clear from from your voice, but starting I, my own church. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I do like that approach, though, because it's not like Lightstar or you, you know, personally are keeping this as the secret sauce, which you could, I guess, yeah. and say, look, we found a way to improve our communication strategy. We're streamlining permitting. We're getting a ton of land deal, uh, you know, siding. Uh, we agreements. did that. Oh, you did keep yeah, we it did. to yourself. We, we kept it to our chest because we it was an experiment, right? Like yeah. we wanted to know if this was going to speed up our permitting timelines, it was going to speed up or increase our success with municipalities, if it was going to be able to be done at cost neutral. You know, th those were we wanted to make sure that we our designs for being an industry leader was actually going to come true. And 238 megawatts in the pipeline is proof in the pudding. So when I say that, and that was kind of our debut this year, we were like, all right, we're opening the book. You know, we, mm -hmm. we want to push people that this is this is the next best thing because we're not going to be able to do this without a coalition of folks. So we actually haven't talked as much about policy as I ex expected we would, uh, you know, beyond that first uh, effort in, in Massachusetts with SMART. Where does the policy framework stand today around agrivoltaics? Um Maybe point to some exciting markets or ones that you guys are looking at as as good opportunities. Yeah. So the framework that I'm pushing is low administrative burden <laughs> because states are overburdened. Their people are understaffed. You know, they're also and we need to be ratepayer neutral um, or not or not significant ratepayer impact. Everybody all over the country is experiencing big uh, rate increases. Mm -hmm. uh, the gas market is extremely volatile. You know, we paid in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, my husband was like, why are we paying so much more? And I was like, it's the gas. He was like, I thought they locked in rates. I was like, I did too. But who knows? <laughs> so, you know, there, it's we're facing serious uncertainty in terms of um, gas production. And that's the foothold in Massachusetts and all over the country. There's many more end users in markets like Georgia. So, you know, the we need to be mindful of ratepayer impact. So I have been proposing because, you know, the, the old adage is like, well, you need more money to do agrivoltaics. I was like, well, I think that we just need a nudge <laughs> so that the industry adopts it. It's the same thing with LMI. You know, we did, hmm. we used to require increased incentives for low to moderate income folks. And now we have better mechanisms to register those folks, better to auditing. Um, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction there. And, the incentives are reflecting that. Right. And yeah. so that's I think that we can get to a place where tax incentives, you know, property tax exemption or farmland tax taxes exempt uh, exemption. I'm sorry. Farmland tax assessment um, is the norm for agrivoltaic projects. And you can see that in Massachusetts. We uh, got it in for the New Jersey program. Maryland just passed. Um, there's legislation that's been filed in New York for it. Um, so we're kind of taking that on the road is like, if you want to nudge the industry towards something, uh, tax advantages are really great way to do that. Now you, then you have to navigate kind of the County situation with folks and, and we've brought that to, brought that to the table, um, in each of those conversations that we've had, but, um, I don't want to be in a place where we're asking for six cent adders across the country because that will just fall flat. So that's kind of the policy framework we're going with, because if you do allow these projects to be farmland tax eligible, then you are audited yearly to make sure that you're in production. So therein lies a really great compliance mechanism. Hmm. It doesn't require 
added administrative burden. It already happens. It exists. You know, you need to update the uh, information that the assessors get um, and helping the county folks understand what that looks like. But, you know, we're already doing that work with the agricultural and um, land grant universities. You know, they're building out their capacity so that their extension agents can work with <laughs> the assessors to understand what these projects are and aren't. So that is like, that's the baseline. <laughs> now, I would really love to see megawatt targets. Um, and I would really love to- Assign specifically to agrivoltaics. Yeah, because then- you, know, you see this in Illinois with the buckets, right? You have your school bucket, you have your community driven, you have, you know, in Maryland, RIP the buckets, which thank God we don't want them anymore. But, <laughs> um, you know, they've got open space, landfills and rooftops. Uh, yeah. And so you, why not agrivoltaics? It's a new way to incentivize people to go towards it and, you know, really carving that out because, not every project needs to be agrivoltaics, and you know people are shocked when they hear me say that because they just think that I'm the, I am this evangelist. <laughs> um, but you know, not all of our projects are agrivoltaics. You know, there's a time and a place for it. There's a farmer that's that's really driven about this, and it, there is this fit for it. So, uh, but there's so many more uh, companies that can be adopting this and and should be. And I think that preferred siting for agrivoltaics is is where we're going with that. And that's what we, my team has been really driving towards. Well, Lucy Bullock-Seeger, you are clearly disinterested by this this topic. So <laughs> I, I hate that I wasted uh, an hour of your time and made you, made you yeah. labor through this conversation. But thanks so much for joining the Fact of This podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Lucy Bullock-Seeger for joining the podcast. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's most important topics with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.